hey, welcome back everyone to the Duck Pond Wall. I'm your host, Monica Hoyle, and I am excited to be sitting on the wall today with someone I've known for a very long time. He's an old friend, and when I say old, I mean he graduated in 1986, so he's old, and I'm so happy he's here with us today. Ed Ripley, thanks for being our guest today. Well, thank you for having me, and what year did you graduate, Miss Monica? 85. So I know what yeah. it looks like. Don't yeah. I? Yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> well, we're excited to talk to you today because you have a really cool job, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But well, you also have a really cool, what would you call it? Would you call it a hobby, a side life? What would you call your role in magic? Yeah, I would call it a hobby. Probably. A hobby. All right. Yep. All right. But you're not just like sitting around doing card tricks for the kids. Every four years, they have the World Championships of Magic. So every country, actually every continent is allowed to have a contest where they pick their best and their brightest. Those people are chosen like the Olympics to represent Europe, uh, like Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Asia, Australia, Africa, and North America, you know, all the different regions of the world. Uh, it's going to be about 250 magicians all together. Um, North America had 15 slots that they could fill. We had 25 magicians that were juried and were chosen to compete. Yeah. Um, so they picked 25 magicians to compete for 15 slots. Um, it was judged on international um, judging criteria, which means anything from the appearance of your hair to the cut of your clothes would count off points. And if you get below 70 points, you're not uh, a high enough standard to represent um, the world in the World Championships of Magic. So you're telling me that across this whole country, they chose 15 people. It gets worse. So we had 15 slots. Yeah. After, after they did the judging, nine of us were selected. So we've left a lot of unfilled slots. And it's because they refused to allow anyone to go that didn't have a legitimate shot at some type of high performance. So. Oh, my gosh. Ed, that means you're really elite. I'm going to have to be nice to you now. Because you're going to be nice to me. And so. Of all of the magicians, and they're all people that your, your audience will know, like uh, if they watch Penn and Teller, if they watch uh, Magic on Television, if they go to Las Vegas, uh, all of those types of things. So most of y'all um, uh, would know uh, magicians like Shen Lin. I've competed against Shen Lin three times in international competition, and every time he got first and I got second. Um, wow. Chin Lim also won America's Got Talent twice. Uh, and so uh, he is uh, doing pretty good. Um, this time, uh, I think everybody, I think everybody that was in the contest with the exception of one person had been on Penn and Teller. So I've been on Penn and Teller, you've seen me. I remember uh, on, that. But I think everybody else has been on Penn and Teller. Some of the acts are absolutely fabulous. If any of your people have seen um, uh, Stuart McDonald on Penn and Teller, 
Um, if they've seen Eric Tate on Penn and Teller, all those are my teammates for the world championships. So it's, it's like getting selected for the Olympics. So I'm like the only one that's not a full-time professional magician in the entire group. Uh, and I feel like the chubby little Erzbeckist Danny gymnast that just barely made the cut to be, to represent (laughs) their country. So I'm super, super stoked. Well, it's a, but how, how do you judge something like this? I mean, do, is it based on, like, who has the best trick? Is it based on, I mean, I know you said who, appreciate your explanation of how you got on the team. But then once you get to the competition, then, you know, they're not, they're not just going to be judging you yeah. on your hair and your outfit. So it's originality. It is entertainment value. It is appearance. It's theatricality. It is showmanship. Uh, it is magical content, which is very important in a magic contest. Uh, it's uh, continuity of story. It's uh, your basically theatrical blocking, your staging, your costume. Uh, I'm being, I'm going to compete in parlor, and I'm going, which is magic that you would do for a small group of friends. And I'm going to compete in invention. So uh, my act, I've invented a magic trick. Most of the stuff I do is variations on classics of magic. Mm-hmm. So this year, I'm going to be doing the cups and balls. Okay. So when, when is the competition? July of next year in Quebec, Canada. And it's the first time the world championships have ever been held in North America. As a matter of fact, the Federation International Society Magique, which is the world championship committee, swore that the world championships would never be held in North America. Why? Because they swore that it would never be held in North America. I mean, why? And Do they, they have something against North America? Yes. And we're going to have about 2,500 to 5,000 people there to watch the world championships. About 250 magicians competing. What's it like? Do people all roughly do sort of the same kinds of things? Like, will a lot of people be doing cups and balls or just? No. Uh, I would imagine that I am probably the only act that's going to do either exclusively, that's going to do exclusively cups and balls. So my entire act is just cups and balls. And I am probably going to be the only magician out of 250 to just do cups and balls. Is that a helpful thing? Because, you know, other people are not going to see other people doing that. Normally, that would be whatever the opposite of a helpful thing is. But when not we helpful. put a Yeah. So I've got some very strong magic. You saw the moneymaker on Penn and Teller. I've got some very good, clever, original magic. Uh, But from an entertainment standpoint, which is really what I care about, a lot of some of the best magicians in the world, like Johnny Thompson, Tom Mullica, absolutely love my Cups and Balls act. Uh, So it was one one of Tom Mullica, who's deceased now, but it was one of his favorite acts. In November, so you knew who Lance Burton is. Okay, so Lance Burton is a magician that was 35 years in Las Vegas, had his own theater in Las Vegas for 35 years uh, and was on TV. He's like Lance Burton and Copperfield are the two TV magicians that we think of from the 80s, 90s, 2000s. And then Matt King, who still has a show, probably the most popular daytime show in Las Vegas right now. Uh, The two of them will be performing in Kentucky 
in November, the first week in November, and I will be performing there as well. So, oh, that's and pretty cool. In January, wait, where, where in Kentucky? Cumberland Falls at a place called the Unconventional Convention. Well, I like the title. Yeah. Uh, and then in January, I will be performing in Las Vegas again. So I was there last, it was the year before, just before COVID. How did you actually get started in magic? I mean, did you, were you that kid who like, I mean, I was that kid. I had the magic kit that I'd seen on TV and I could, you know, I could do some stuff. So I mean, were you that kid who got those little kits and loved playing with them? So no, I actually loved magic. I saw, um, uh, Doug Henning. Oh yeah. Uh, and really thought he was, cause he was cool. You mm-hmm. know, he was, he was cool. He was not just like a normal magician. He was a storyteller. And, um, I loved magic and my grandmother recognized that. And in 1973, August 9th, 1973, she gave me a hundred dollar bill and took me to Bob Hutchings Magic Shack in Jacksonville, Florida, and we spent that hundred dollars on magic stuff. Oh and my that, gosh, that feels so like a million dollars in 1973. Yeah, hundred dollars in 1973 would be like giving a kid a thousand now. It was <laughs> an extravagant amount. Uh, so I bought the cups and balls. Uh, I bought the linking rings. I bought uh, scotch and soda, uh, which is a coin trick. And I bought the J.B. Bobo's coin magic um, and maybe a couple other little things that day. And the cups and balls and the linking rings, as you know, uh, I perform every show. So I'm one of the few people that the first tricks they ever bought are still the tricks that are with them in their professional repertoire. Did you ever Um, do card tricks? So I don't particularly like card tricks, but I really? do. I, so yeah. So for me, um, it sets a mood. I mean, well, no, I guess this surprises me because card tricks it, in my mind are in some ways related to math. And because you're a math and science guy, we haven't talked about your job yet. We should, let's yeah. just actually, let's take a break for magic and tell people what it is you do. Okay. I work at the Y-12 National Security Complex. I and that's in Oak Ridge, and not everybody understands it. Yeah. Okay, the, yeah, that's the, in Oak Ridge. Yeah. The first part of my career, I was in health physics, which is radiological controls, looking for, you know, checking shipments to make sure that everything was radiologically clean. We didn't send out any contamination. Everything was, uh, every all the radiation that we dealt with stayed in, in the areas where we were dealing with it, and nothing got out. We also checked to make sure that no people got contaminated. There was no internal contamination or lung counts or anything like that. So very, very health conscious. As a matter of fact, the first years that I worked there, um, they because they track our body burden every year, your, the amount of radiation in your body. So the first year I was there, they did a baseline. And then the second year I was there, they did first year count, an annual count to kind of see how my, my cleanliness practices were. And uh, my body burden actually went down because I knew what to avoid. So there's lots of sources of natural radiation. But if you don't know to avoid, you'll get a certain amount of radiation just living in East Tennessee or Southwest Virginia. And if you avoid those because you're aware of them, you can reduce your your radiological body burden. 
Wait, now you mean besides Fiesta Wear Dishes? What else? So do you like Brazil nuts at Christmas time? Radioactive no, but I, I, I like to pick around them. Yeah, so right, they have radioactive cesium, cesium in them. It's not a bad thing. It's not going to hurt you, but it's something to know about. Uh, the sources in, um, in your uh, smoke detector are one of the strongest radiological sources that can be owned by private individuals. So, well, so, um, all right, so that was the first part of your career. That was the first part of my career. I started August 27th, 1990 at Y-12 as a radiological health physics technician um, and uh, got my master's in nuclear engineering. I became a shift technical advisor. So that is Scotty on the Starship Enterprise. For a nuclear facility, I knew every system, subsystem, and component, all the utilities, every nut, bolt, every square inch, what fed into the facility, what outflows went out of the facility, all of the procedures, all the technical stuff. But I decided to go back and get a master's in metallurgy, so uh, metallurgical engineering. And so I went to the University of Tennessee. Uh, then I graduated with my master's in nuclear engineering. And uh, uh, then I went back to technology development in uh, research and development in the technology development division at Y-12 and okay. worked there for 22 or 23 years in technology development. And I worked developing things that are called bleeding edge technologies. Those are technologies beyond the leading edge. So an example. In uh, the 1990s, I developed a process and applied for and actually got a patent on a process to print metal, ceramic, and cermet components. So that was in the 1990s. So that's like 3D printing is now. Mm -hmm. But in the 1990s, I was printing metal, I was printing ceramics, and I was pr printing cermets. Now, what is a cermet? Ceramic, metal, cermet. Oh, so, I did not know that. Yeah. So if you look at carbide drill bits, they're, they're a drill bits that you use for hard metals or concrete. They'll call them carbide drill bits. They're actually okay. tungsten carbide. So sure. tungsten is a metal. Carbon is a, uh, when it forms with tungsten, is a ceramic material. And you end up with tungsten carbide. Uh, and then they usually use nickel as a face centering agent. So you end up with this cermet, and that's a very tough material. So right. we, used, we used them for armor. Uh, we used them for uh, back at, in, in those days for the to line the inner inner surfaces of the Patriot and Phoenix missile systems for the uh, leading edges of fins on the Patriot and Phoenix missile system, those types of applications. And so then I developed over the next 22 years, uh, I got 31 patents on different bleeding edge technologies. So it's all stuff that 20 years ago was just like blow your mind crazy. And then 20 years later, it's stuff that's starting to be like the, you know, if somebody's got a plastic 3D printer, that's pretty, pretty advanced now, right? Well, I had a metal, ceramic, and cermet printer back in the 1990s that I designed. So that's the type of work that I did for the last 22 years. After 22 years, there was a program called the Weapons Intern Program at Sandia. Uh, Sandia 
is in New Mexico, and they were looking for the best and the brightest young engineers. Uh, I applied for it, and I actually got the weapon intern program. Everything was classified as the weapon intern program, and I show up for the first day, and they're 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds. Wow. And there were no 40-year-olds. And we had B-52 pilots. We had a B-1B pilot. We had a guy from the FBI, Weapons of Mass Destruction Directorate. We had people just the absolutely sharp, the most stellar, awesome young people you could ever meet. And then, of course, you know, the lumbering dinosaur comes in. Um, and did you and say, wait, did you just say, wait, not only am I right, I also could do magic. Wait till you no, see my cups and balls. No, so I, I was kind of more like um, Tigger when they went and lost him in the woods. I was a, a quiet Tigger, a humble Tigger. A couple times during that, I would have to mysteriously disappear. When we were doing the Pin and Teller show, I was under contract. My supervisor at the weapon intern program knew that I was going, but I was under contract like a gag order. Uh, if I gave too much details about what I was doing, I would have to pay the production cost, which is a quarter of a million dollars. So I was under a gag order or whatever. Wait, so you, was, couldn't tell, you couldn't tell that you were on Penn and Teller or you couldn't tell that you were in this weapons program? I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell my friends or my family. Becky's the only one that knew I was going to go on Penn and Teller. And she was the only one that knew that the week that I was going to be there, that I was going to be filming, that it was coming up, that they were going to air the show. All of that, they want to be a complete surprise. And you're only allowed to announce that like the week or two before your episode comes on. And they say, wow. you can go send out the press release now. Well, uh, it's, that's I, more super secret than the weapons program. It was, it was kind of strange, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and, so I disappeared for a while and I trusted my classmates. I took them up into the, uh, into the classroom and I told them basically what I was getting ready to do. And I told them, please, please, please do not share it because if, if it gets out, I could have to pay the production cost, which is a quarter of a million dollars. And so um, they kept my secret. And then uh, when it came time for my episode to air, I was at the World Championships of Magic in Korea. And so I'm coming back in Los Angeles from Busan, South Korea. And I get into Los Angeles and I'm coming through customs. And this lady says, sir, I need you to come here and bring that bag. I'm going to need to, to take a look at it. And it had gone across the x-ray belt. And I said, I know it looks very suspicious, uh, there's nothing in there that's dangerous. You're welcome to take a look at everything. She goes, I know exactly what it is. I just saw you on TV the other night. I want to see how it works. And I said, young lady, that's an abuse of power. That is that's not a funny. That's so, funny yes. though. All right. So all right. So we're talking today with Ed Ripley, Emory Henry class of 1986. What, what what how do you qualify your job? If you introduce yourself to people, do you say that you're an engineer? Yeah. So yeah, I'm a nuclear metallurgist. 
Were the kids ever interested in magic? Will thought it was cool. And Anna thought I was the most embarrassing human being on the planet. But you thought it was cool. And you were talking about your grandmother taking you to, to spend all the money at the, at the magic shop. And so but when did you start doing this more seriously? When, when Will was about eight or 10, I took him to a magic show and he thought it was cool. And so I dusted off all the old magic gear. So I was an old man and started doing magic again. So I competed at the Tri-Cities in Johnson City. There was a magician there that I competed against. Uh, I competed and came in second. And then I competed in Chattanooga and came in second. So I competed a lot of times and came in second. My first first place was at the Winter Carnival of Magic in Pigeon Forge. Well, I think it's very cool what you're doing. It's very exciting what you're doing. If, if 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 some little kid were to be listening, or even better, if some grandma is listening and they're thinking, you know, I'd like to get something to get my grandchild started on something like this, like your grandma did for you. What what, what do you recommend as a fun first trick for a kid? So books, um, books are always good. So if they're young, I would start them basically with the library type books. And if they're interested in those types of things, then obviously the YouTube or videos, or there's a tremendous amount of resources out there for magic now. If they start with uh, like an elementary school book and like it, then I would say that that's enough of a spark of interest that you can start buying them. I wouldn't buy them too much stuff because I think it's better for people to learn things organically. I believe magic is kind of real. So if I walk up and I look you in the eyes and I hold out my hand, you put your hand out and without ever saying a word, we shake hands or fist bump, right? Making right. that type of a magical connection where no words are spoken and yet information is exchanged. That's powerful. You see, magic is a sigh in a desperate world. It is a, it, it is a chance for people to entertain their inner child and believe that things are possible that they know don't exist, right? So it, for me, it's, it is kind of like a little vacation in my mind. And when I do something that seems impossible and somebody gets that chill down their spine, it's, it, it feeds me as much as it feeds them because it allows people to believe that anything's possible. And the truth is magic happens all around. It's like, like when I reach out, to shake your hand and you reach over and, and we make that connection. That's a magical thing, but people don't recognize it as magic, right? So it happens all the time organically. And then when I do something that looks a little bit unusual and tell a story and something incredible happens, then that is that takes the magic to the next level. So I just got through teaching a class of, uh, in a Zoom class, of uh, magic to a bunch of Chinese students. The thing that I told them was the important thing is to, to do something that you enjoy. So pick a type of magic you like. If it's cards, do cards. If it's coins, do coins. If it's doing it with everyday objects, do something with everyday objects, but do something that you enjoy and tell a story. And if the story is compelling enough that people want to listen to it when they can't see the props, and you have a prop in your hand, it's not a story. It's magic. Did you do some acting growing up? I know you did some stuff at Emory & Henry. 
Is that right? Um, yeah, did a little stuff at Emory and Henry. Uh, mom, when I was growing up, was a model. She was the Sony Electronics girl in Yokohama, Japan, when we were growing up. So she was on billboards and TV when I was when I was growing up in in Yokohama, Japan. She was on TV. She was on billboards. She was in magazines. I've never um, heard this story. I didn't even know you grew yeah. up in Yokohama. Yeah, well, just till I was a little boy, and then we moved back. And my brother, my brother was Tommy Toy for Tommy Electronics, and so he was the train sets, the race car sets, and if you go to antique shops. And you buy the old Tommy toys, and yeah. there's a little short crew cut, cute little kid. That's my brother. He was Tommy Toy. I was so bad, badly behaved that uh, I was actually banned from photo shoots when my mom was on set. All right. Well, and we probably ought to wrap up, but I just want to, you know, thank you for sharing with us about this and telling us your story. And, and I'm excited. So, so you, you don't compete until July of next year, but you'll be performing in Kentucky before that, right? And I'll be and performing in Las Vegas again. in when, when is that? In January. Okay. All right. Yeah. And if folks want to see you, we can find you on YouTube and we're going to put some links on the webpage to that, yeah. but uh, we should Google Ed Ripley, hip hop, cups and cups. Balls. Exactly right. right. All right. Because when we you look also, at you, we think hip hop. You could do the Penn and Teller and then either Ed Ripley or Penn and Teller scientist and look for somebody that looks like me. And uh, that then you get to the Penn and Teller from YouTube is the same way. All right. All right. Well, Ed Ripley, Emory and Henry class of 1986. I want to thank you so much for being with us. You're a nuclear engineer and also a world-famous magician. And we are grateful that you would uh, share your story with us. And we can't wait to hear how things go in July. And, and thank and Kai. One parting, one parting thing, because you were supposed to ask me a question, what is your biggest takeaway from your Emory and Henry education? You're right. And I didn't ask you that. Ironically, a lesson that I learned and I use every day, I got from... Alpha Psi Omega, which was the drama fraternity. Drama. Mm -hmm. And when I became a member of the National Drama Fraternity, their motto was live a life useful. How awesome is that? And so I, I took that to heart. And of all places for a drama fraternity to actually make that big of an impact on me, uh, but I have striven to to live a life useful ever since. So I was in um, I was in uh, Alpha Phi, which is a service, fantastic organization. Did lots of service projects. I was in Theta Chi Epsilon. Absolutely loved my brothers. Uh, it was a fantastic uh, social fraternity. But one of the biggest takeaways I got was from the drama fraternity. And their, their phrase, their, their life lesson is live a life useful. I love it. And you've been doing that yeah. ever since. You got to love it. You got to love it. All right. Well, Ed, thank you very much. I appreciate you being with us tonight. And appreciate all of you all being with us on the Duck Pond Wall. And we hope that we will see you next week.